Bienvenidos a todos. You are listening to the Paseo Podcast, where we highlight stories by, from, and about the Puerto Rican community. My name is Joshua Smyzer de Leon, and I want to thank you for downloading this episode. If you are listening to this on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or anywhere else podcasts are streamed, give this podcast a like and subscribe to it. It makes a world of difference. We started this podcast as a way to bring attention to the diverse and vibrant stories that make up the Puerto Rican communities here in Paseo Boricua in Chicago and around the world. From La Isla to the diaspora, we hope you enjoy what you hear. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Paseo Podcast at Paseo Podcast on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram if you want to keep up with us. If you want to follow me, I'm at JS Leon on Twitter. You can also pitch a story or volunteer for the podcast by reaching out to us on our website, paseomedia.org. We have a YouTube channel, too, where you can watch the interview portion of our episodes. Just type in Paseo Podcast and we'll pop right up. And while you're there, like our videos and subscribe to our channel. Help us get to 100 subscribers, y'all. Por favor. For this week's episode, we welcome Dr. Melissa Lewis to the show. She's the principal of Dr. Pedro Albizu Campos Puerto Rican High School. We're going to discuss the high school and how it differs from Chicago public schools, her experience as an Afro-Boricua in the education field, what it's been like leading the high school through the pandemic, and a whole lot more. But first, I want to cover off on some news and other items. Uh, there is a lot to go over today, so please buckle up. First off... In honor of Black History Month and today's guest, I want to share a brief rundown of just who exactly Dr. Pedro Albizu Campos was. Now, if you come around Paseo Boricua here in Chicago, you'll see the Casita Don Pedro, where there is a statue of Albizu Campos erected in the center of the courtyard. Uh, there's also murals of him and, as we'll learn from today's guest, even a high school named after him on that strip of land. So um, who was Dr. Pedro Albizu Campos? Well, I will tell you. Here's, some, here's a quick little rundown of who he was. Now, this may not do uh, his memory justice, uh, but definitely encourage you if you're uh, motivated after what I share, uh, definitely give yourself some time to do some research on him because he was a, a really interesting guy. Um, so uh, to start off, you know, he was the son of a mixed race mother who was the daughter of slaves and a Basque father from uh, a farming and uh, a landowning family. So uh, his dad, uh, you know, had had some money there. Um, Albizu Campos grew up in poverty, though. Uh, his father never recognized him as his son until he was an adult, and uh, his father also never offered him any type of support during his upbringing. In 1912, he was awarded a scholarship to study chemistry and engineering at the University of Vermont. He transferred a year later to Harvard University, majoring in chemistry and literature. This uh, made him the first Puerto Rican Harvard graduate ever. So huge, huge deal. Um, definitely a trailblazer in that respect. He served in World War I as part of an African-American military unit. After an honorable discharge, he entered Harvard Law School, graduated in 1921, while simultaneously studying literature, philosophy, chemical engineering, and military science. 
He was fluent in eight languages. Now, this blows my mind because I struggle just uh, speaking English. Um, but uh, he knew six modern and two classical languages. He was fluent in English, Spanish, French, German, Portuguese, Italian, Latin, and ancient Greek. Uh, talk about impressive. Uh, definitely a man of the world here. Uh, this, of course, uh, brought him offers to work for the U.S. government, but he rejected these offers and went back to Puerto Rico in 1921 in order to devote himself to the cause of Puerto Rican independence. He quickly became a leading force within the Puerto Rican Nationalist Party with his talented speaking and intellect. In fact, here's a clip of one of his speeches. It's not the speech in full. It's a little snippet that I, I found online. Um, he's essentially talking about the spiritual archetype of Puerto Ricans. Now, it is in Spanish, uh, the clip I'm, I'm about to play for y'all. So if you don't understand, that's okay. I just wanted to share this to give you a sense of the passion he exuded when he spoke. So here's the clip. Hay un arquetipo espiritual puertorriqueño. Hay un anhelo de superación puertorriqueño. Hay una grandeza puertorriqueña. Hay una visión de belleza puertorriqueña. Hay una fe puertorriqueña. Hay una fe que se extiende hasta la eternidad de generaciones por nacer de grandes y nobles y santos puertorriqueños. So you can hear in that clip just how talented of an orator he was. It really makes sense how people became enamored with him, with his presence, with his intellect. Uh, in 1927, he took his show on the road as the vice president of the party by conducting diplomatic visits to the Dominican Republic, Haiti, uh, Cuba, Mexico, Panama, Peru, and even Venezuela. And this was all done in an effort to garner support for a unified anti-colonial struggle. In 1930, he was elected party president, and um, it was then that he initiated a massive political organizing and education campaign for Puerto Rican self-determination. In 1932, the nationalist campaign began to advocate for revolution. In 1936, the leadership of the party was arrested and charged with seditious conspiracy. Dr. Arbizu Campos was sent to the federal penitentiary in Atlanta in 1937. Albizu Campos's uh, health ended up suffering in prison, and he was released in 1947. Now, when he returned to Puerto Rico, he helped to reignite the battle for independence in the hopes of disrupting a proposed plan to grant Puerto Rico Commonwealth status. From that point on, he was sent back to prison, pardoned by Governor Luis Munoz Marin, had his pardon revoked, and sent back to prison. He was serving an 80-year term in prison when his health again deteriorated and he suffered a stroke in 1956. Uh, and it was during this term that he alleged he had been poisoned with radiation, which in 1994, I might add, the U.S. Department of Energy confirmed that human radiation experimentation had been conducted on prisoners without their consent. Um, so there's a very, very, very strong chance that uh, Dr. Pedro Albizu Campos was in fact telling the truth when he was saying he had been uh, poisoned by, by radiation. Um, he was pardoned once more by Governor Luis Munoz Marin in 1964, and he died the following April. So that's a quick rundown of who Dr. Pedro Albizu Campos was. 
Um, and again, in our conversation with Dr. Lewis, we'll, we'll talk a little bit about Pedro. Uh, we'll also talk a little bit about why the high school is named after him. Um, but I just wanted to give you all some context. Um, and if you haven't heard of the man named uh, Pedro Abuzo Campos, again, definitely take some time and, and do some research. Now, in lighter news for all you dog lovers, uh, this is just such an interesting transition from Dr. Pedro Abuzo Campos. Now I'm going to talk about dogs. But um, this is like a really good feel good story. So I wanted to share this. We actually shared this on our social media accounts. Um, so some of you listening may have already seen this story, but there's a Utah outlet named KSL. They shared the news that uh, people in the U.S. are going to have the chance to adopt or foster dogs from Puerto Rico. Love is in the Air, a collaborative effort between the Sato Project, a nonprofit organization rescuing abused and abandoned dogs from one of the poorest areas in Puerto Rico, teamed with Wings of Rescue, an organization saving shelter animals from being euthanized, uh, had an amazing Valentine's Day. The project saved close to 200 dogs and is bringing them to the United States for adoption and foster care. Uh, looks like they are being taken to New York and Florida, understandable, since both those states have a combined 2 million plus Puerto Ricans living within them. So if you're in either of those states, show these Satos some love and, and give them a good home. And for all those listening, Sato is uh, Spanish, in case this is the first time you're hearing this word. It's a, uh, a word in Spanish that essentially means stray dog, stray cat. Speaking of finding new homes, we shared in a previous episode how Bad Bunny performed and got in on the action at the WWE Royal Rumble a few weeks ago. Well, looks like San Benito is sticking around for a while at the wrestling organization as he recently won the WWE 24-7 title this past week on WWE Raw. That championship can be won anywhere and at any time. He won it backstage while doing an interview with WWE wrestler and fellow Boricua, Damian Priest. Looks like those two will be in a tag team for a match at WrestleMania this April. In fact, here's a clip of the moment when Bad Bunny um, won the 24-7 title uh, with the help of, again, fellow Boricua, Damian Priest. I should also mention before playing this clip for y'all, um, there's a couple other wrestlers in this segment. There's another person that has the, the WWE 24-7 title. Uh, they end up getting pinned backstage. Uh, you know, Damian Priest jumps in. Um, and then uh, basically assists Bad Bunny in winning this title. Um, so again, does this any? Does this really matter? No, but you know, I thought it was something fun. So uh, here, here's the the clip. Excuse me, Damian Priest, Bad Bunny, welcome to Monday Night Raw. How's the last couple of weeks been for you? Sarah, what else can I say? I mean, I debuted at the Royal Rumble. I joined the Monday Night Raw roster, and now. I get to hang with one of the biggest stars on the planet. This week's musical guest on Saturday Night Live, Bad Bunny. Thank you, thank you. I'm so happy, I'm so excited. Um... Oh my God, it's his Alice won the 24-7 title for truth. Baby, yeah. Uh-oh. Dale, dale. Dale, gane el campeonato. Oh, no way. Oh, Bad Bunny is the 24 7 champion. So there you have it. San Benito, 
24-7 champion in the WWE. Uh, I mentioned this last time when we brought up his participation uh, at the WWE Royal Rumble that, you know, the way wrestlers are treated, again, they're treated as independent contractors. So not a lot of love for wrestling organizations and the way they treat their workers. I stopped paying attention to wrestling for a while. Um, but for some reason, the YouTube algorithm never fails. I'll, I'll get these different um, wrestling clips every once in a while. And of course, um, being Puerto Rican and listening to Bad Bunny, the algorithm went to work, showed me this clip, um, thought I'd share it again, just thought it was something fun. Um, but yeah, that's what's happening in, in the world of Bad Bunny living a, a childhood dream. And it looks like for months to come, he'll be, uh, be involved with uh, the World Wrestling uh, Entertainment Organization. Moving on here, wanted to also follow up on a news story we mentioned previously regarding Puerto Rico's governor, Pierluisi, uh, declaring a state of emergency to help combat gender violence on La Isla. When we first talked about this state of emergency, we were concerned, um, and understandably, as it was not clear if people in the LGBTQ community were included. But Governor Pierluisi did confirm the state of emergency is LGBTQ inclusive last week in an interview with Good Morning America. Here's a clip of that. You recently uh, declared a state of emergency there for violence against women and transgender individuals. A lot of your constituents were asking you to do this. What does that change? What does this do in the fight against this type of violence and discrimination? Yeah, it's, it's been too long. Uh, this uh, pattern of um, male chauvinism, related violence, um, feminicides, homophobic and, and transphobic violence. Uh, we want to promote diversity, respect uh, each other. And what I'm doing is putting uh, uh, funds where my mouth is, actually, mm -hmm. because I just proposed a budget including $6 million to um, increase the resources of all the agencies dealing with this. I want every victim of um, violent crime, particularly women, but also um, uh, in the, you know, people, um, uh, transgender community, um, uh, LGBT um, uh, community members, I want them protected. Uh, a little bit of a stumble there. I always find it interesting when elected officials can't get the words LGBTQ out of their mouths. Um, I don't know, it, maybe I'm being too harsh, but uh, it kind of feels like you should probably know the acronym by this point, right? I don't know. It almost feels a little disingenuous, like almost as if the LGBTQ community is an afterthought um, or just kind of like this identity bingo that politicians have to check off their box. Um, but anyway, that that maybe that maybe I'm uh, trailing off here a bit too much. But I think what I what I really would like to share with y'all, uh, and I'm going to reiterate what I shared in an interview that I did for La Depalia on this issue. I'll actually make sure to include the link to that article in the show notes. Now, it's the media, so everything I shared in the interview wasn't exactly included. Uh, I shouldn't say wasn't exactly included. It wasn't included in the article. But here's the basis of, of what I shared in that interview. Um, ultimately, this is a long overdue act that human rights activists have been demanding for years. You know, as a refresher, the state of emergency allows Governor Pierluisi's administration to put policies in place meant to respond to and prevent violence against women and people in the LGBTQIA plus community across 
uh, Puerto Rican government agencies. So this can include things like media campaigns to educate the public about gender violence and processes for survivors to report aggressors and ask for assistance. This is important. You know, it really is because it is an official acknowledgement by the Puerto Rican government that there is a growing problem on La Isla. Both women and the LGBTQ community have experienced a rise in violence against them in recent years. Uh, again, the, the data, you know, really uh, makes your heart drop. Um, you know, 60 women were killed in Puerto Rico last year alone, which translates to one killing a week and represents a 62% increase compared to numbers in 2019. Puerto Rico has also experienced an increase in violence against the LGBTQIA community with a significant increase in hate crimes over the past 10 years. It is hard to tell, but my hope is that this is an intentional move forward by the Puerto Rican government to help bring awareness to and help end violence against women and the LGBTQIA community. However, this could very easily be an empty action that looks good at face value, but ultimately isn't given the proper attention, resources, and follow-through it deserves. Let's not forget, Pierre Luisi is part of the same party, PNP, that lifted up former Governor Rosselló, who called women whores and joked about wishing the former mayor of San Juan, Carmen Yulín Cruz, dead, among other misogynistic and hate-filled speech. Um, we're currently looking for guests to, to come on the show to discuss this declaration and what it means for La Isla. But if you're looking for more on this topic, Al Jazeera recently published an episode of their show, The Take, titled A Wave of Killings Against Transgender People in Puerto Rico. And we'll make sure to, like we do with a lot of stuff that we mention on the show, we'll make sure to link that in the show notes. Heading from Puerto Rico to Chicago now, journalist and former guest on the Paseo podcast, Manny Ramos, wrote a powerful piece in the Chicago Sun-Times this week. His article had a connection to the recently released film Judas and the Black Messiah, which tells the story of Fred Hampton, who became famous in Chicago as chairman of the Illinois chapter of the Black Panther Party and deputy chairman of the National Black Panther Party. In his article titled Letter to a Young Lord, Remembering Manuel Ramos, Manny tells the story about how an off-duty police officer killed his grandfather. If you haven't already made the connection, Manny is named after his grandfather, Manuel Ramos. Um, and this killing happened in 1969, which was seven months to the day before Fred Hampton was assassinated. He also talks about the generational impact this killing had on his family. Manny's abuelo was a member of the Young Lords organization here in Chicago, and he and other founding members of the Young Lords fought to uplift the Puerto Rican diaspora in Lincoln Park, which if you go to Lincoln Park today, it is a gentrifier's heaven. Um, it used to be a predominantly Puerto Rican neighborhood, uh, but policy and property and all the other things in our society that oppress people of color uh, had their way with the Puerto Rican population, which made them here in Chicago uh, migrate to other parts of the city. So there's just some added context there. Um, but I don't want to give away too much because I want you to read the article. Uh, but uh, Manuel Ramos's death sparked thousands to protest against police violence against young, black, brown, and poor white people, and hundreds gathered in front of police stations demanding charges be brought. Like I said, Manny's been on the show before, and knowing him and reading this article, I can tell this was a personal one for him to type up. So I'll make sure to include this article in the show notes, 
Um, definitely give this a read when you get the chance. We might even get Manny on the show to take the deep dive on the story of his grandfather in the future. So definitely stay tuned on that. Um, until then, we're going to switch gears to this week's interview with Dr. Melissa Lewis. Let's jump into the interview. Bienvenidos a todos. It is February 9th, but that doesn't really matter because this is a podcast. We're just happy you are listening to this or watching this <laughs> on YouTube, uh, wherever, whenever you are. Uh, we have a very special guest here from Chicago. Her name is Doctor. The doctor is important here. Just got that this past December. Um, mm -hmm. Dr. Melissa Lewis is the principal of Dr. Pedro Aldizu Campos Puerto Rican High School here on Paseo Boricua. Uh, Dr. Lewis, welcome to the Paseo Podcast. How are you today? Thank you. I am well. And thank you for adding the Puerto Rican high school part. You know, Jose Lopez really enjoys, you know, when you <laughs> insert that, you know, we have a thing about naming the school and using its full name mm. in its entirety when you use it. So I appreciate that Puerto Rican high school thrown in there. I yeah. really do. Dr. Lewis, uh, what should our audience know about you? Okay. So what should you know about me? Um, I am, I'm one of five. I'm a mom to an 11 year old and a nine year old. And, you know, the DePaul connection, you should definitely know that because I married my college sweetheart after Love at First Sight in the DePaul Student Center. Like it was literally Love at First Sight, like the, the light from the sun followed him in. And we were just like, oh, and he was like, oh, and it was Love at First Sight. And we married, you know, a few years after we met. And I think DePaul because I really did marry my DePaul sweetheart. So there's that DePaul connection. And what else do you need to know about me? I am an educator through and through. I love learning. I love to, you know, just really spend time cultivating things that I'm passionate about. I'm also right now super busy with remote learning. Like it is remote learning all day long. Like some point there are five different computers running off my poor internet connection at home. <laughs> well, um, definitely gonna gonna get into remote learning because uh, of course when I talk about uh, Pedro Abizu Campos High School and your work there. Um, Pedro, I just wanted to back up a little bit because you mentioned DePaul. Um, actually, yes. I'm wearing people watching this on YouTube. I'm wearing my DePaul gear today. I actually used to work at DePaul University, double demon and I met my college sweetheart at DePaul University too. We got married at the same time. Yeah. Oh, see, I love it. I tell everyone that that I know when they ask, well, how'd you meet your husband? I was like, we met in the student center and it was love at first sight. The light followed us in. It was like, Jesus sent him to me. And everyone's like, no, I'm like, no, I swear it. I swear it's exactly how it went down. Love the DePaul connections. For anybody not in Chicago, go Blue Demons. You should know yes. that if you come to Chicago, it's a big deal here. But let's uh, let's explore out of Chicago. Let's go to La Isla. Um, mm -hmm. A little bit of background on yourself. Where where is your family from in Puerto Rico? My mom's side of the family is from San Lorenzo. You know, my abuela came here when she was like 21 years old. My dad is from Juanica, you know, and when I visit Puerto Rico, most often I visit Juanica. I'm closest to my dad's side on the island. And, you know, Juanica is beautiful. We have a very own Gilligan's Island. It's it's amazing. Unfortunately, though, I haven't been to the island in five years. It's been a long time since my kids were little. So I definitely have to make a trip. Wow. Yeah, my um, my family is from San Lorenzo on my my grandfather's side. Um, I feel like San Lorenzo runs deep here in Chicago. The Montañas sure are, are, are big deal. The, the mountain people here. Um, yes. 
So, uh, as we mentioned, as we mentioned at the top of the show, you are Dr. Melissa Lewis, that doctor, yeah. you put a lot of work into getting that. Um, you're the principal of Dr. Pedro Abizu Campos, Puerto Rican high school. Um, I think it's safe to assume that you are passionate about education. Um, what, uh, what made you want to get into the education field? So I think back of like the middle school me, you know, and I was sitting in seventh grade and I always, I always remember this story and it really, it haunts me because I think of, you know, the message that it gave me. So in seventh grade, I was always your quintessential teacher's pet. I mean, I was the best student. I did all my homework. I was cleaning boards, whatever a teacher wanted. I was there. Classrooms were always my safe space. But in seventh grade, I asked my teacher, I was like, you know, hey, like, tell me about the high school application process. And she's like, well, Melissa, you're a good student. You know, you read really well. I think you're going to have to get out of Humble Park for high school. And I'm like, what do you mean get out of Humble Park? She's like, you're going to have to go as far away as you can get, but not too far. So she's like, you know, you need to go and apply to Lane. So I was like, okay. So I did. But the message that I needed to leave Humble Park in order to get a good education, the message that Humble Park wasn't good enough still like haunts me today. And I think about that and I think about whether or not today Humble Park is good enough. It is. I can tell you right now, I choose to live here, work here, breathe, shop, do whatever I can do in this community because it's important to me to tell her now that Humble Park is perfect. You know, we have our strengths and we need to acknowledge that. So I got into Lane and I remember not being very impressed with the teachers because they lacked that personal connection to me. It was hard for me to see someone that looked like me in front of the classroom. And the only person who, interestingly enough, I, I have found memories of in, at Lane is Karen Lewis. And, you know, we just recently, you know, lost her. And I remember just sitting in her chemistry class and she would teach me how to play like spider silence here, like the card game. <laughs> and I still play that today. And I think about, you know, how she wanted to make a connection with you. So I say all that to say that I've always wanted to be a teacher, but I never found really good role models of what that looks like. What does it look like to really believe in your community? What does it look like to believe in your students? What does it look like to make a connection to them? What does it look like to honor where they come from and their lived experience? And I guess I had good and bad experiences of that in both, you know, teachers that I can think of. Well, it's interesting you mentioned Karen Lewis too. And of course, RIP Karen Lewis. Uh, for those listening that aren't familiar with Karen Lewis, uh, maybe live outside of Chicago. She's a former head of the Chicago Teachers Union here, uh, definitely a staple in the city, a uh, true rock star um, mm -hmm. and an advocate for, for workers' rights, specifically teachers' rights. Um, actually, she, there was, um, for people listening, I know you know this, um, but uh, for people listening, she there was actually a lot of talk that she was going to run for mayor against Rahm Emanuel. Yeah. So that's just how much that speaks to the level of support Karen Lewis here. So talk about a great uh, role model to have right. um, in education. Right. That definitely sounds like a challenge um, from the standpoint of, you know, you growing up in your community, uh, the idea, um, I would hope most people when they're growing up is, okay, how can I, you know, set roots in my community, give back to it. So to be told, 
well, the only way you're going to be successful based off of who you are is to leave your community. It's almost like a brain drain um, right. um, from right. communities that really need that, that talent, skill from people that are homegrown. Um, mm -hmm. So looking at your your journey through education, what would you say are, are some of the challenges that you experience as a woman of color in the education field? I think for me, as an educator, I was often in spaces where I was the only mm -hmm. Afro-Latina. I was the only, you know, woman of color who understood that you have to really center and humanize our students. And I think of, I spent a lot of time actually organizing, you know, teachers around issues, really around social justice issues, issues that impact our students outside of the classroom impact who they are and how they represent themselves inside the classroom. And it really makes our jobs more whole when we see them as whole students, when we see our families and our communities as whole. But we also address, you know, the disparities when we also address housing and healthcare and all the other issues that are non-school factors, right? So I think of all of the times I had to tell white female teachers, no, as a teacher, you need to be concerned with the housing situation of your student, or you need to be concerned with their, you know, food insecurity. And that's that that caring and that matters. And that's to me one of the toughest parts of being a woman of color. That sometimes you have to teach people that are different, like, that have had those different experiences, that we're gonna see past the trauma that our students have, but you still need to acknowledge it. You still need to understand what they're, where they're coming from. You know, so, I think that was probably the hardest mm -hmm. part for me as a woman of color in education. If I'm hearing you correctly, it's more like the the perspective and insight of being different than, you know, this carbon copy student or educator. Um, you know, you're able to bring those experiences when you have a, a more diverse makeup of your 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 um, your workforce, your teacher force, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. um, your educator force, I should say. Did you ever, were you, when you were in those moments, um, when talking to people about a holistic view of education and how there's so much interconnectedness on, um, a child's success in the classroom, um, especially in how that relates to home life. I mean, shoot, even traveling from, from home to school and, and vice versa. And it, were you ever challenged when you were, you know, trying to tell people we should have a, a different approach to education just beyond when a kid's just sitting in the desk? Like the, the, right. there's more to consider than just, you know, what you're writing on the whiteboard or what you're reading in the textbook? Absolutely. And I think, you know, a lot of my experience was having to confront that, having to have those conversations, those really difficult one-on-one -on -one conversations in which you really challenge someone to think differently. You know, and I think that, you know, one time I can think of, you know, I used to work in a middle school on the Southwest side, predominantly Mexicano students, mm -hmm. and I loved it. But as the only Afro-Latina in that building, it was hard to have conversations with white teachers that were coming from the Beverly Mount Greenwood area about what it means to honor that you know, honor the sacrifices. And now in a pandemic, it's even worse. It's like you're living a whole, whole different life than what your students are experiencing. And you're not bringing it into the classroom at all. You're shutting it off. That's not conducive to learning. You know, how do you make connections when you're not 
really honoring who your student is. How do you approach those conversations? I'm always curious. I, I, I love asking people that, especially because those aren't those aren't the easiest conversations to have. I think for some people it comes naturally and it's like, okay, let me tell you what's up and let's have this debate. And like they feed off that. I think there's a lot of people that feel that something's wrong, may not know how to articulate or do know how to articulate it, but feel so otherized that mm. it almost feels like you're fighting an uphill battle. And is it, you start to question, is it worth, is it worth it to even try or attempt to explain what uh, the realities of our children um, in the, in the education world is at the risk of just feeling like, you know, I'm just talking to a brick wall. Right. Um, you know, in your case, you know, how do you approach those, those difficult conversations? I think, you have to be willing to have a conversation one-on-one. -on -one. Mm -hmm. Like it needs to be a private conversation that you're having with someone. You need to let the person know, hey, um, I noticed something in today's meeting or I noticed something in you know, while we were at lunch together and I wanted just to ask you about it. And I think, you know, the, the best way to do it is to get their kind of, get their thinking behind what they said. Let them explain it in further detail and then you can you can figure out where they made the mistakes, you know, where where do those, you know, misconceptions come from. And then that's kind of how you approach it, because you don't want to come across as, you know, blaming them and as, you know, villainizing them. But they do need to understand that what they said or how they're approaching something is is not whole, not complete. And you just want to approach it from an, an angle like you're missing part of the picture and I'm going to help you get there, but it can be hard and it can be entirely isolating because you're constantly that person. And it's like, ah, oh, Hey, wait a minute. That can be hard. And you've got to be willing to, to stand alone sometimes, but you also need to find someone who's going to be your ally in it so that you're not the only person who's, who's having to fight that fight. Well said. Um, so so uh, this is a good transition because you are the jefa of uh, <laughs> Dr. Pedro Abizu Campos, Puerto Rican High School. Um, and uh, like I had mentioned to you before we started recording, you'd been on our list for a while because I know the high school does a lot of a great work. Um, I've met some alums um, over the years. Uh, have seen, I've seen Jesse Fuentes, former guest on the show, walking yes. around Paseo with, with students. Um, so it looks like there's a lot of life um, and a lot of activity and, and really good stuff happening um, and coming out of that high school. So for people right. that are unfamiliar, um, let's take it back to the name of, of mm -hmm. the high school. Can you explain for our listeners that may not be familiar with Pedro Albizu Campos, um, you know, who was Dr. Uh, Dr. Pedro Albizu Campos and uh, why was the high school named after him? So he was the first Puerto Rican to graduate from Harvard. He was a World War I veteran. He was a labor leader. He was the president of the Nationalist Party and a political prisoner, right? And I think that when you think of him, he's really a symbol for, you know, freedom and justice, you know, really calling attention to like that colonialism that we, that still remains between the U.S. and Puerto Rico. Then I think of of really him being a, a, a symbol for pride, you know, in our people, pride in our community. And I think that the high school being named after him really, really honors that relationship and, and how we see education as being a disrupting of the colonized mind and body and how we really, how we structure our school system to do that. Looking at the founding of the high school, 
Uh, when, when was it founded and why was it founded? So in 1972, you have students who were dropping out, Puerto Rican students who were dropping out of high school at record numbers. I think it's like 72.9% of Puerto Ricans are dropping out of school. So students at Tule, which was before Roberto Clemente was founded, were like, we need a curriculum that matches our our identities. We need a Puerto Rican curriculum. We need something that we can identify with to fight, you know, being drop, dropping out and being pushed out of a system. Well, at the time, the school board refused to hear them. And parents, activists, students then decided that, well, they were going to do it on our own. We're going to create and build from the ground up an independent school. When Pedro Abisu Campus was founded, you're talking about it being founded from within a community. Mm -hmm. You know, it's very similar today in that young people are still dropping out at record numbers. You know, you're still losing, you know, young people. And now you're being pushed out of a system, you know, that you're not, you're not fully seen and heard within your regular, schmegular high schools. Young people are, are, are still becoming disengaged so nothing's different you know we haven't seen much change in that respect and that's you know it's a sad situation that young people are still dropping out and being pushed out of of their local schools and is that a majority of the student body at uh is there an acronym for dr pedro Abizu, uh, dr pedro you know. Campos, Puerto Rican high school <laughs> only because like it's a mouthful yes. but i don't mind saying the whole thing i just want yeah. to be like okay if there's if there's an acronym. This is a good, yeah. <laughs> this is a good learning opportunity. Yeah. So down. we do not like any of the initials. Don't call us patches. Don't call <laughs> us, you know, don't, don't do all that. If you're going to shorten us, you got to use Abisu Campos. Abisu if that, Campos. If you, yeah. If you're going to shorten us. Yeah. Use okay. the Abisu Campos. Right, cool. Yes. I know there's also like a rallying cry too, isn't it? Isn't, I, oh. I, feel like I've heard, I feel like I've heard this. Whenever Rita, I see like this a is, group of. <laughs> listen, or, or you staff, know what? There is, there is, and you know, I might have to show you that at the end of this, um, this recording, I might have to make you uh, an official, a member. Ooh, VIP <laughs> status. All yes. right. All right. Yes. <laughs> um, I always, you know what else I think of, no, you know, please. when you think about the founding, I think of Jose Lopez in that because mm -hmm. he always talk, you know, he talks about being at Tuli and, you know, there was like this disconnect between the teacher and the community. Mm -hmm. And, you know, he says that, you know, the teacher would come out of the parking lot, walk straight into the school building, do what they needed to do, walk out and go back home to wherever they lived. And there was never a, a valuing of the community. And then I think about my own experience where it was the same thing. You know, you had a teacher who didn't value the very community that you're teaching in. And again, not much has changed. I'm not that much, you know. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I guess I am pretty much, you know. Of a certain age at this point, but oh, still. come on, <laughs> come on. Um, you know, it's just nothing's changed. You're still not valuing the community in which you serve. Yeah, it's, I'm glad you brought up Jose Lopez. Um, I know you mentioned him at the earlier in the show, um, but executive director of the Puerto Rican Cultural Center here in Chicago. He's very big on this community as a campus mindset and how the different um, institutions, organizations, businesses, what have you in a community do not exist in silos, but rather it's more of like a wicker basket mentality where everything is intertwined and interconnected um, and should be woven together to really help enforce, reinforce the value of that community and support the community holistically. 
Um, that is like a very generalized version of what community as a campus <laughs> is, but right. um, but it can produce some really uh, amazing results. Um, we actually had uh, Dr. Jonathan Rosa from Stanford University on the show to talk about community as a campus. And I mean, mm -hmm. I, I find that mentality fascinating. Um, right. I feel like more communities across the United States, across the world should have that mindset. Um, and when I look at something like Albizu Campos, you know, I, I still am trying to understand, um, and hopefully you can shine some light on this. You know, we have a public school system, we have private schools, we have charter schools. You know, where does Albizu Campos fall within that spectrum? What, what model of education is it? I love that you asked that question because sometimes, you know, people consider us to be a charter school and I don't, I don't see us as a charter school. And technically, you know, we fall under a charter system because we're a campus of Youth Connection Charter School. But what we really are is a community school. And YCCS, the acronym for Youth Connection Charter School, has 19 different community schools that belong to a community organization that is fighting this issue of dropout and pushouts in CPS. And together, we are a charter network, but I wouldn't consider myself to be a school, a charter school leader. I consider myself to be a community school leader. And it's that same idea of being interwoven into the community. When I have a young person that's in crisis or I have a family in need, I call members of the community for assistance. I call someone who works at the Puerto Rican Culture Center, someone who's volunteering their time to really help me. And I think that's the difference between your community school and your charter school. Plus, I'm not fighting, you know, for enrollment. Like I'm, I'm serving young people that want to be back in school that are not enrolled anywhere else. Mm -hmm. Hmm. You know, that's, that's a different sort of mentality. I'm not fighting for young people in that way. I'm not taking young people from, you know, a, a stable environment and bringing them to my school with the promise of a, yeah. I don't know, what are they giving out these days? <laughs> Who knows? Who knows? Right. It's, uh, it's the whole education space. I find it fascinating, but I also find that the more I learn, the less I understand. You know, there's just right. there's so many questions that come up the, the deeper you dig. Um, but looking at the high school, going back a little bit, you had mentioned that um, you know there was uh, there's a lot of young people in our city who are dropping out. Um, Avizu Campos was a great um, option for them. Um, can you give us a sense of the makeup of Albizu Campos's uh, student body? Would you say that uh, a majority of students uh, had dropped out of other high schools and then, you know, Albizu Campos was like the, the go-to spot for, for their needs? Um, you know, also, like, would you say that like a, a number of students come from, you know, working poor families, working class families, um, you know, what, what, what's the makeup of Albizu Campos' student body? So we service young people primarily in this community. I would say almost maybe 60% of our young people are coming from within, you know, the, the three or four area codes that directly surround our school. But they're primarily young people that have been out of school for at least six months. You know, they haven't been at an, at an institution um, in quite a while. So there's a lot of like re-engagement that has to happen. I think a lot of our young people are from families that are of the working poor. And I think this pandemic has made it, has made that even more apparent to us as, as educators that our young people are choosing to work 
and they're choosing to work 35 hours a week because they have to, they have to, this isn't a choice for them. They have to find a way to do both. So mm. yes. So those are the, those. Yeah. Wow. Um, well, that, that's, that I'm glad you brought up, you know, the challenges of, of the pandemic. Um, it has been a wild year and I feel like, of course, people have, have felt the pinch uh, of this pandemic's effect on the economy, the workforce, um, you know, across the board, except for our quote unquote friends on Wall Street. But um, mm -hmm. that's another podcast episode for another day. <laughs> um, looking at uh, education, looking at what teachers have to experience, what students have to experience. I mean, my gosh, talk about a ripple effect, everything from remote learning to are the parents able to to work remote, remotely to support their kids, internet connection. I mean, right. I mean, the list goes on and on of the disparities that exist from people that have and people that are falling that category of have nots and how, you know, that disparity in education is only can that gap is only continuing to grow. Um, so and, and this is just stuff that in my in my reading, um, you know, and keeping up with with COVID's effect on on education on schools, um, but would love to get your insight as an educator, as a principal. You know, what's it mm -hmm. been like leading out these campos during the the COVID nineteen pandemic? You know, for me, it's been incredibly isolating. Mm -hmm. You know, it's hard to run a school when one hundred percent of my staff, I would say maybe 90% of my staff is 100% remote. They're home and it's it's the best choice for them. You know, keeping my staff at home makes sense. You know, I don't want to lose anyone on my staff due to COVID-19. I don't want to put anyone at risk. And we made the choice very early on to remain 100% remote. And if we needed to fight the powers that be to make that happen, we were ready to do that because we knew what our students needed. You know, they needed flexibility during this time. Our students are, you know, like I said, they've gone from being high school students to now being essential workers and working 35 hours a week or caring for their, their family members or helping their younger siblings with remote learning. Depending on the student, their experience has been different. So that's the other thing. Like it, there's no cookie cutter approach to how we handle our students during this time to how we how we are there for them and build the supports that we need. It needs to be an individualized approach. What's happening in your household? How can we help you? Is it remote learning that you're struggling with? Is it, you know, essentials? You know, and I think one of the things that, you know, community as a campus has given us are those resources. You know, when I have a young person or I have a, a family that's in need, I can pull some resources from the Paseo Boricua to address those. In terms of leading, I can tell you the number of peace circles we have had as a staff where we are all just in tears and we're having to process together and we're having to really find that common thread, you know, that we're all going through something. We just need to go through something together, you know, and it, it's it's been hard. It has been incredibly hard. I think that I try to lead with grace, but it's been so difficult, so difficult. And it's a pandemic. It should be, you know, this isn't normal times. Mm -hmm. This isn't normal times. So I'm constantly trying to ask myself, is this what we need right now? Can this wait? You know, am I, am I putting too much on my staff? You know, what are they going through? Are they even going to tell me? Are they going to be honest? You know, how do I create that space so that you can come to me with your worries and I can help, you know, carry it along? But it's been, it has been tough. And I think mm -hmm. that it's tough everywhere. And I just hope that there's a support system in place that you can go to when you need help. 
We're going to take a quick pause for the cause, pero no se muevan, porque when we come back, we're going to ask Dr. Lewis some listener questions, talk about her thoughts on the infrastructure or lack thereof to support students and teachers during the pandemic, what she is hearing from teachers as they try to leave classrooms remotely, whether or not she'd send her kids to Albizu Campos, and a whole lot more. Stay with us. We want to take this moment to say thank you again for listening. When you download our podcast or subscribe to the podcast itself, that makes a world of difference. So gracias for taking your time to listen to us. We also want to take this time to thank the sponsor of today's episode. This episode would not be possible without the generous support of the Puerto Rican Cultural Center. The Puerto Rican Cultural Center, located at 2546 West Division Street, right here in Chicago, is a community-based, grassroots, educational, health, and cultural services organization founded on the principles of self-determination, self-actualization, and self-sufficiency that is all activist-oriented. For more information on the work they do, give them a visit at their website at prcc-chgo.org. Again, that's prcc-chgo.org. Now, if you or anyone else you know would like to be a sponsor of the Paseo Podcast, please email us at paseopod at gmail.com. That's P-A-S-E-O-P-O-D at gmail.com. Tell them Joshua from Humble Park sent you. Do you feel like there's enough infrastructure in place to adequately support students, teachers, school leadership during the pandemic? Absolutely not. I think that's one of the things that we chose. We're like, we're not going to follow CPS guidelines. We're not going to put, you know, high school students in front of a computer for seven hours a day. Like we are lucky enough that we were able to follow the ISB guidelines and ISB guidelines, you know, gave us the option of being online for a max of three hours a day. We were like, we know that that is best for young people. We need flexibility right now. We need, you know, to understand that their priorities are shifting, you know, and especially when your student body is as diverse as mine is in terms of, you know, needing to work to support their families. Like it's, it's hard. And from hearing you correctly, Melissa, did you say, so instead of a seven hours of screen time, it's three hours of screen time a day? Yeah. Yes. Wow. So what hap- what fills the other the other time in the day? We're allowing young people to have that independent work time during that during that time. We're giving young people the opportunity to do check-ins and to have peace circles and to really get that one-on-one support that they might need from a teacher or that small group support that they might need from a teacher. You know, really give that that mentor and student connection a time to work and and it's been it's probably been one of our biggest successes is not doing a seven hour day. Like we're just going to cut it to three hours. We're going to follow the ISB guidelines. We know what the science says about screen time. And we know that our young people have those competing priorities right now. We know what they're doing. We know what they're working on, you know, and they're so resilient, but you also, you also know what needs to be done to support them. No, I hear that. Yeah. I, I just thinking about how, putting myself in the shoes of a student 
I remember looking at the clock, like as uh, the deeper I got into the day, I remember looking at the clock and just counting down the seconds to like, okay, lunchtime, time to go home. Like I, I, right. I worked in high school. Um, you know, there was other stuff going on in my life growing up in Humble Park. You know, this, I remember just the mental burden of trying to balance those things and really find out and discover who I am at that age. Um, so I can only imagine what that's like now that your only interaction with education is is in front of a screen. Um, and talk about Zoom fatigue for people in the workforce. I can only imagine mm-hmm. what it would be like going seven hours straight for a student. I mean, I can't even imagine what it's like, what it would be like going seven hours straight for a teacher. Right. Um, I mean, I've spoken at conferences, events. Yeah, I, I've done different speaking engagements and just talking for a consistent amount of time can take so much out of you. And that's just me talking, like from my experience, just me talking to a group of people and then maybe we have Q&A at the end. Like right. when you have a group of students, like that that's so much more attention that that is demanded of you. I mean, talk about a big undertaking. I mean, what would what would it be like, what is it like for for teachers at Dalizu Campos? Like what are you hearing from them? What are some of the challenges that they're experiencing? You know, how are you supporting them during, during right. this uh, pandemic? Right. I think one of the things that we, you know, pride ourselves on is that we really were like, we need to do, we need to reimagine what, you know, our school system looks like. So we reorganize. All of our teachers are teaching in pairs. So you're not, you're on a teacher team. So you're not alone. You're not, you know, giving live instruction to a room full of teenagers that are ignoring you because a lot of it is, you know, young people are, they've got those competing priorities. They're trying to, you know, cook dinner for their families and, and help a sibling. So, you know, you're probably going to get muted and you're going to be in a pocket, (laughs) but at least, you know, they have their, their teacher team to fall back on. And I really wanted to fight that isolation that we experienced in the spring because you were teaching alone, like you didn't have anyone and we we didn't have the time to reorganize when the shutdown happened in March. So over the summer, we really thought of, you know, what does it look like to best support teachers and students? What do both groups of people need? Students need less, you know, screen time and adults need support the best way to do that is teachers supporting teachers. And that's really been, you know, what saved us. And, you know, I think that we just finished semester one and I gave my my team the day and we collectively, we colored, we meditated, we, we just spent the day having that deep sigh of like, take that deep breath together because it has been a lot in a pandemic. And we need to remember that we're still in this pandemic. Like this is not getting easier. You know, and I think of where we were uh, in June of 2020 and we had 100 seniors to graduate. And I had a young person who buried his mother from COVID-19 on Monday. Graduation was Thursday. You know, it's like, this we're in a pandemic like we we can't do things the same we've got to do things completely different and now it's like well what are the best things what are the ways that we've reimagined this and how do we build the school post post covid that doesn't have these walls that can that can serve young people in a way that they need you know because a lot of these young people that are working these 35 hours are going to continue to need to support their families like that's not something that i can just be like no you got to go to school now Like, you know, quit that job. That's not going to happen. And I think for me as a young person, 
I worked in high school because I wanted jeans or I wanted something, you know, fancy. I wanted a cell phone. Our young people are not having that same experience. They're working out of necessity. They're working to pay some bills, you know, and I think it's, it's a different experience and you've got to honor that and find ways to make it work. Yeah, it's a new reality for sure. Um, and yeah, you, you mentioned that one heartbreaking story of the student that had to bury their mother and my gosh, that's, you hate to hear stories like that, but that's, that's the reality of what our young people are, are experiencing and families are experiencing during this pandemic. Um, so just, you know, that, that, that's a, that's a hard one. Um, looking at, uh, the graduating class for this year, what do you foresee just thinking of that transition from being a senior in high school to then being a freshman in college? Man, they, at the start of the pandemic, they were juniors. And now the next time they're probably going to step into a classroom is going to be in higher ed. Right. So, you know, what do you foresee as some of the challenges that your students are, are going to be facing as they transition out of high school and into, into college? You know, that experience of being in a classroom is going to be completely different. I hope that a lot of our young people are going to be adaptable. But one of the things that I hope that my staff is ready to do is to really follow our class of 2021 and really pinpoint how do we support you post-graduation? How do we get you through that first semester of college? How do we how do we check in on you? How do we still be how are we still serving as that support system for you? Are we running study halls for our class of 2021 freshmen in college? Like how do we really maintain that system of support for them post-graduation? Right. Because that first semester as a college student is so hard. (laughs) And yeah, it's it's wild. Yeah, I do want to transition to something a bit more positive. Um, Really, (laughs) really curious to hear from you. (laughs) I know it's so hard. I know, you know, um, it is. I I, in this most difficult time, like you've you I've had to find joy. Like I've had to find ways like I've had to sit and think of like I'm I have I'm blessed enough to be able to run a school remotely, like mm -hmm. almost, you know, three out of the five days I'm home. I'm home with my kids Mm -hmm. and to even see them like I think there's also like this piece as a parent. And that's not even, you know, as a parent in the pandemic, it's hard to see. Like my, my son is nine and my son will tell you, mommy, I don't have any friends, you know, and it, as a parent, it's hard because you, you know that you're protecting your kid, you're keeping them home, you're keeping them safe, but it's incredibly isolating as a, as a little young person. Yeah. So I, I do, I find <laughs> joy in the fact that I get to spend more time with them, that I can right see on. them as students, you know, because that's mm-hmm. also an interesting dynamic to hear them in their classroom and to hear their thinking, but yeah. Anyway, hmm. yeah. So are your kids going to go to uh, Bezo Campos when they're ready for high school? You know what? I would send them in a heartbeat, okay. you know, because it. I think of, you know, really having this community approach. It's community driven. And I would, I would send it in a heartbeat. I would say right now, tomorrow. But I still want to focus on Bezo Campos. Uh, so Got it. What would you say is one of the things you are most proud of, of um, the work, um, you know, any, anything that involves Albizu Campos? What's, what's one thing that you're really proud of that the high school has done or is doing? I draw a lot on being inspired by Jose Lopez. And I remember, you know, one of the very first meetings I've had, I had with him as, you know, the newly minted principal, he was telling me about how his idea for the perfect, you know, school really values and sees and hears and loves, you know, young people and and sees students, 
you know, in their wholeness. And I've tried to emulate that as much as I can. And one of the things that I'm probably the most proud of is that, you know, at the end of last school year, we were awarded an emerging supportive school certification by CPS, which really means that we have the right systems of supports for students and their families. And I think to be recognized that way is incredibly important because I see that so many of my young people don't have a positive relationship with an adult when they walk into, you know, Abisu Campos. They don't have that positive teacher-student relationship that you need mm. when they walk into Abisu Campos. So for me, having that designation says that we're doing something right, you know. That's something that I'm super proud of. I think the other thing is that post-secondary piece. Like we're still trying to figure out how do we best serve young people post-graduation? What, what happens after they leave Abisu Campos? Because you need to have a family-sustaining wage in this day and age. Like you've got to be ready to, you know, have that baby mama. No, just kidding. <laughs> you know, but I think, um, <laughs> but I think of, you know, that post-secondary readiness, what does that look like for our young people? And they need options. They need college. They need partnerships with the city colleges. They need partnerships with Northeastern. You know, I'm going to give um, a shout out to my big jefe, you know, Marvin Garcia, you know, the, the, the chief of the community of, as a campus. And I think his vision for what does it look like to have a young person or people, young kids like my children, you know, who started in this community as babies, how do they, where's their pipeline to secondary education right here in Humble Park? And that looks like, you know, universities having satellites, having satellite classrooms in Humble Park so that my my own two young people don't have to leave Humble Park to get a good education. It happens right here at home. So that's something that I'm proud of. I think that, you know, we have some opportunities to really develop the workforce. You know, I recently presented to the Puerto Rican Agenda about our, our partnership with Illinois Youth Build Coalition that gives young people the construction awareness to really build low-income housing right here in Humble Park and across the city to fight gentrification so that young people have the skills they need to sustain families. You've got to find a way to give young people the tools they need. You know, they're not going to be 17, 18 forever. <laughs> yeah, and I'm sure and we were both in that Puerto Rican agenda meeting. I remember hearing that report and being very impressed. I mean, just the emphasis on, on, um, you know, giving young people, giving students the opportunity to learn about what a trade is, just trades in mm -hmm. general in a school curriculum is something that we just don't, we don't, have, we don't have anymore. I'm a firm believer that not everybody is is cut out to go to a four-year higher ed institution. Like right. Sometimes just like the mind, the skill set, the passion is just different and they just don't, they don't, they don't run, they just, they just uh, built differently, you know, right. and, and that's okay. And that's, that's beautiful. And Working in the trades is, I mean, talk about skills. Like if you go into like, if you go into electrical work, you never have to hire an electrician again. You know what it's I mean? So like true. It pays it is itself so true. off in more ways than one. Um, so really excited to, that I heard that, that y'all were really investing in that. Um, compared to Chicago public schools, the curriculum there and the curriculum at Albizu Campos, how would mm -hmm. you say they most differ from one another? We use a project-based learning approach. And, you know, we find that there are complex issues within our community that need complex solutions, but that are also community driven. So we try to 
really bring those community issues into the classroom. I think the other way that it differs is that we do what's called a competency competency based approach. You know, it gets too late in the day. All of a sudden, I can't use my words. <laughs> my mind is that, by this point in the day. Too. I know <laughs> <laughs> that really just says that we're going to focus on the skills that young people need. You know, where are you at right now? And what do you need in order to get to that post-secondary readiness? And whether whether that's college, career, the trades, whatever it is, yeah. you know, you need to have certain skills as a foundation to move forward. So we really kind of do, we're doing all of those things at the same time. And it can be, you know, draining. And then you're also, you're also really pushing a social justice awareness. You know, what does it look like to really kind of fight. And I always tell young people that my goal is that out of every young person that, that leaves and graduates at BC Campos, I want to build activists. I want to build young people that are willing to go out and organize in their communities and fight what's what fight for what's right. Like they are the generation that can do that. So for me, my the way that I think of our curriculum is a curriculum for future activists. Like that's it. That's what I want. You know, solve the issues that you're seeing right now in your community the way you know how, the way you want to, you know, with the skills that we've, you know, hoped to have given you. As we wrap up our, our time together, we do do a little bit of a lightning round. We've introduced this mm-hmm. segment of just random questions that listeners will throw out and, you know, I just kind of compile them and, you know, throw them out at, at a guest. Um, uh, so I just want to, before we get started, just, you know, Make sure you're ready because we asked the hardest of hard-hitting okay, questions on the Fasil podcast. Um, <laughs> okay. Got it. Ready? Here we go. Lightning round. Uh, favorite Puerto Rican restaurant in Chicago? Uh, La Brugana. Oh, uh, the Sorada. bias shows through. It's yeah, like across you know, the street. <laughs> I'm not going to lie. Um, Sorada will no longer speak to me if I didn't say La Brugana. She also feeds me very often. Um, yes, she's Spanish so teacher I, at Albizu Campos. She is, ah, she okay, is. okay, yeah, yeah, she yeah. Is. No, awesome. I am pretty biased though, and you know, it's <laughs> right across the street, yeah, she does, she does. They do have great food, they do have great food. Alderwoman of the 33rd Ward, Rosana Rodriguez Sanchez, I asked her the same question, and she mentioned La Brucana and Casayari, um, yeah, so yeah, definitely. You know, I actually I've never had Casayari. Hey, oh my gosh, you gotta go. I know, I know, I know. I went for the first, I mean, I had been trying to go. Other people had been talking about it, talking about it for a minute now. And every time I try to go, either it's packed. I mean, for people that have gone, that haven't gone to Casa Yari, it's a smaller space. Um, so you have to reserve in order to get to actually okay. get a seat. So it's like a, like the timing has to be really right. Um, but okay. one day my wife and I had the time off and we rode our bikes there and I had okay. probably one of the best hibaritos in my life. Like it was I love a good hibarito. So good. So good. Yes. I love um, a good hibarito. Okay. You're making me hungry. Do you put mayonnaise okay. on it? Uh, yeah. Oh, okay. I don't put mayonnaise on it. Oh no, I put I everything. Like I want, I want all of it. I want all the, I want it all. <laughs> Yes, I don't care what kind of cheese you put. You know, I put both kind of cheeses. Oh, white and yeah, I'm I'm with in, it. 100%. I'm going all in. If I'm gonna have a hibari with honey, I'm going in. Yes. All right, love it, love yes. it. Okay, mm-hmm. ne- next question. Next question. Before we started recording, I told you that the pandemic has been hard on me. Not for the reasons that it's hard on other people. Mine is very superficial. Uh, it's my hair. I haven't been able to get my hair cut in a minute. So I tried cutting my own hair for people watching on YouTube. Um, not the best job, I will admit. Um, but right. that, that got me thinking of a really good question for you. Um, going back into our time machine, 
If you could mm-hmm. go back in time and pick one hairstyle that you would want to bring back, what would that hairstyle be? You know, catch me in the morning and I have a mean afro. So like if I could rock that and and it would be like normalized, they'd be like, why didn't you call me here this morning? I'm like, what? I want a mean afro. Like it would be out to here. Yeah, I want to. Yeah, I that's that. that. that's what I want. What fashion trend would you really want to bring back? I like the bell bottoms. I would rock it with my afro. Like you need to have the whole look. Fun fact, I did, you know, I was in um, Pete's, or I think I was in Pete's, and someone was like, you look like Tracy Ellis Ross. I was like, huh, I do, don't I? Okay, okay, <laughs> I was like, yes, I, love I, it. Right, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> That's great. What a great, oh my gosh, what a great person to be compared to. Um, I know, right? I was like, okay. <laughs> I love that. Okay, what is your favorite thing about being in the education field? I think that my favorite thing is young people. Young people are just man they're resilient they're full of hope they're full of love yeah that's probably my favorite thing like they are just they're so full of hope and you know wonder for what's next in their lives like i think that's that fire within them can be you can catch fire in others you know right on i love it last question we ask all our guests this to wrap up our time together it's a little segment we are have no name for what is one thing you are most obsessed with right now and again it can be related to puerto rican culture it could be outside of that um comic books uh, books movies tv shows whatever uh what are some things or one thing you're obsessed with right now Okay, I'm going to tell you this, and I wasn't going to tell you this, but you brought up your haircut. Uh-oh. I am obsessed with doing my own nails. Oh, nice. Yes, because, you know, you can spend a pretty penny getting your a manicure done these days. Mm-hmm. And now I'm obsessed with getting the perfect manicure at home. Mm-hmm. So, uh, yeah, that's, okay. and it's superficial, but it's my me time during the most difficult <laughs> year of my life. <laughs> um but yes and what are we talking about when you say do your nails are we talking like painting your nails are we talking about like working it so you have like the coffin shape the french listen i prefer an almond shaped nail job oh my gosh i'm so impressed that you know this (laughs) yes and i actually i dip i have like this own my own like dipping system you know so i dip my own nails yes 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 i'm obsessed Um, Like I'll dream about my nails at this point. Like I think it's the biggest stress relief that I have right now. It's my nails. (laughs) I love hearing that. I love hearing that. Yeah. And and you're you're saving a pretty penny too. Like I am. It gets gets pricey. Um, Okay. (laughs) Um, For people listening, Melissa, um, what are some ways that uh, people want to keep up with you, keep up with the high school, you know, how can, how can people keep up with you? Social channels, website, whatever you got, um, feel free to throw it out there. So you can follow us at Dr. Pedro Abisu Campos High School on Facebook. Um, we also have an Instagram account. You know, I've even tried opening up a Snapchat for the school, but that didn't go so well there. And people are like, what are you doing? <laughs> um, yeah, they were not happy. <laughs> you can also check us um, on our website at patches-chicago.org. It's the only time the, the patches is, you know, allowable. <laughs> <laughs> awesome. Yes. Awesome. Well, Dr. Melissa Lewis, principal of Dr. Pedro Adizu Campos, Puerto Rican High School. Thank you so much for being on the Paseo podcast today. I appreciate you so much. Thank you for having me.
Thanks to Dr. Melissa Lewis from Dr. Pedro Albizu Campos Puerto Rican High School for being on the show today. As a reminder, you can watch our interview with Melissa on our YouTube channel this Monday. Just type in Paseo Podcast and we'll pop right up. Stay tuned next week for our interview with returning guests, Illinois State Senator Cristina Pasiones Zayas and educator Jason Donas. We're going to discuss the culturally responsive teaching and leading standards that the Illinois State Board of Education is trying to adopt and how that will impact teachers and schools that serve Puerto Rican and the wider BIPOC student population. Also, if you want to pitch a story idea, nominate yourself or someone for an interview, or share a news story you'd like us to discuss in the show, visit our website, baseomedia.org, to do just that. See you next week. Without our awesome guests, this podcast would not be possible. And without you, our listeners, this would not be possible. So we really appreciate you listening. If you want to reach out to the show, connect with us by visiting our website, baseomedia.org, emailing us at baseopodcast at gmail.com and following us at baseopodcast on Facebook and Twitter. If you have a tip, want to pitch a story, or send us a compliment, we love to hear from you. Thanks for downloading this episode and see you next week. Cuídate.